Welcome to the Recruiting Trail. I'm your host, Andrew Nimick of the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you the latest in recruiting on the Oregon State Beavers, the Oregon Ducks, and Oregon high school athletes. After more than 15 months without any official or unofficial visits to campus in which recruits could make contact with coaches, we had a very very busy June for all sports. It seemed like everybody was hosting top talents, whether it was basket, men's basketball, women's basketball, football, baseball. Kids were on campus the entire month of June, and, and July now hits a dead period for just a short stretch where we get to kind of recap the action. And I think a big piece of that is taking a look at where classes stand right now for both the Oregon State Beavers and Oregon Ducks. We'll have a couple of different podcasts this week. This week, we will be, we will be breaking down the Oregon State Beavers recruiting class, taking a look at their top five recruits, and also looking at some basketball news. Not only is there big news for the Oregon Ducks men's basketball program, making the cut list for Amani Bates, the number one prospect in America, and seemingly having a real shot at landing him. But we'll also take a look at the AAU circuit. One of the Oregon Ducks women's basketball commits won a national title. A couple of in-state prospects with interest from both Oregon and Oregon State put on a show, and those recruitments are frankly going to get quite a bit more difficult because those young men have blown up. So there's a lot to get to in this podcast Breaking down Oregon State's football recruiting class is where we're going to go first, though. And I keep saying it, this class is much improved. This recruiting effort is much improved, and we're seeing that really across the board. And And it starts with a with a general look at the class ranking. Oregon State right now has 11 commitments. The class is ranked 6th in the Pac-12, 51st in the nation. Oregon State hasn't finished with a top 50 recruiting class since 2013. That might be a little bit misleading. Oregon State has had a couple of classes that finished right in that 52 to 54 range. I think three of them in that stretch. This class was fifth in the Pac-12 and 49th nationally just a couple of days ago. So if we just screen, if we just done the screen grab of it a couple of days ago, it would have been a top 50 class as it stands. A couple of programs add some commitments. Oregon State slides down to 51st, but it's a very good class. Uh, there's still some things that need to be worked out when you're when you're 51st. Obviously, there's a reason you're not top 10. There's a reason you're not top 25. But this is a very solid uh, show of progress. And and one of the things I really like to see, just generally speaking, is Oregon State. For a while, I think people thought maybe Oregon State was going to focus on the transfer portal. Maybe, possibly, high school recruiting would take a back seat to getting transfers. And, and this class is a strong statement that that's not really the case, that they are going to find a healthy balance. And, and I do think it is impossible to find a, air quotes here, healthy balance in the transfer portal. I just, I think you need a blend. I think four-year guys tend to help build your culture. Those guys grow, they develop, you've got a chance to kind of instill in them what you want, both physically and mentally on the field and in terms of style, and then you kind of complement that with these transfers. Now, if you're getting transfers that have four years to play, that's essentially the same as getting a high school kid. That's more of a statement on guys who have two years left or one year left. They should help patch up your roster, and maybe sometimes that's at a primary position. Maybe sometimes you need to patch up edge rushing. Maybe sometimes you need to patch up your offensive tackle position, maybe quarterback some years, and that's okay. 
But I think generally, as Oregon State builds to build an identity, they need to have top seven, top eight recruiting classes in the Pac-12, if there still is a Pac-12 in a couple of years. But you get the picture in terms of where they need to finish and then probably finish in the top 45, top 40 pretty consistently nationally to have a chance to be a perennial bowl contender. That That's the reality uh, in throughout the history, frankly of the Pac-12, uh, you really have a hard time competing if you're 10th, 11th, 12th. And Oregon State's been 10th, 11th, or 12th for like eight consecutive recruiting classes. That's not going to work long term. But this is a much improved effort. And there's a number of talented kids. There have been years where, frankly, even at the end of the signing period, when they've got 24 commitments or whatever it is, and I had to do here are the top five most important, it was hard when you got to four or five to pick out important pieces. That is not the case this year, and they've already got 11. In fact, it was a difficult cut list, and, and that just really speaks to Oregon State doing a much better job. There's a lot more talent in this class. There are a lot more prospects who have Power 5 conference offers. You go back and look at the past few years, and three years ago, four years ago, and then certainly in the Gary Anderson era, a lot of times Oregon State was beating out group of five schools for prospects. If they got a kid from Florida, he'd have an offer from Florida International and Florida Atlantic. They've had a couple of years where late in the process, they had to beat out Portland State, Montana, and even at one time, Incarnate Word to get an offensive lineman late. We're not seeing that here, and I I think that's a really strong indication that that things are improving. There are a lot of really talented kids in this class. I think a lot of kids have a chance to develop. Now, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but but I certainly think as long as you elevate the overall talent in your class, you've got a better chance of, of hitting. So getting into that top five, the top five most impressive, most important commitments in Oregon State's class so far. First, the honorable mention names, Three-star running back, Damian Martinez. I really like Damian Martinez. He ran for 2,000 yards in Texas high school football. Anytime you do that, even if it's not the best conference in all of Texas, even if it's not the best level in all of Texas, that's certainly eye-opening and and something to watch. Damian Martinez... Not only is he from Texas, not only could he potentially develop, and if he does, bring future talent with him, can help recruit the state of Texas if he has success, but also he's done a phenomenal job at being involved in the recruiting process. He is reaching out to targets. He is commenting on when kids commit and getting involved and making sure he reaches out. And again, we go back to things that went wrong before, and some of it was on the coaching staff. And some of it was on the the kids they were recruiting, frankly, but the coaching staff didn't do a very good job of of a cohesive recruiting effort in, in, in the sense that when they landed commitments, they didn't all communicate. And, you know, I only really have the ability to compare to Oregon from a closeness perspective. And I know that drives Beaver fans nuts, but bear with me here for a second. When Oregon State, when Oregon would get commitments, they'd all join a group chat. They'd all be communicating. When they got a commitment, they'd all be celebrating on social media. And for the last several years, when Oregon State got a commitment, we didn't see that buzz. We didn't see that social media interaction between them. And frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction away from social media. There wasn't a ton of connecting. Sometimes they're a quarterback with his receivers, sometimes a quarterback with his O-line, sometimes an O-line with his running backs, but not this cohesive effort where they all kind of know each other. We are seeing that in 
this class. And, and that goes all the way from Melvin Jordan, the, the elite inside linebacker who we'll talk about later, you know, down to some of the lower level kids uh, in this class, they all communicate and that's a good sign. It builds bonding. It makes it easier to hang on to your top commitments because they're not just decommitting from your program. They also at some point start decommitting from friendships they've built. And, and that's really important to understand that building cohesion within your recruiting class is really important. Damian Martinez gets a big assist in that category. And that's one of the reasons that even though he's not an elite recruit in this class so far, he is an important piece of the puzzle. A lot of people will be upset with me for not having this guy in the top five. And, and you'll have to bear with me here. I wouldn't be upset with you if you had three-star tight end Jack Velling out of Seattle, Washington in your top five. He's a, he's a Northwest commit. It helps build the pipeline to Washington. He had offers from Arizona State and Michigan. He's six foot five, 225 pounds. So why isn't he on this list? For me, uh, it's not necessarily that he's not important. In fact, he's very much important. He's a great prospect. And if we're just doing the top five prospects, he would make the list. He's one of their best five commitments. He comes from the tight end position. And when you look at what Oregon State has done in recruiting the last few years, they've really had a lot of success recruiting tight ends. That has not been an area where they've struggled. They've had problems recruiting edge rushers. They've had problems recruiting offensive linemen. They've had problems recruiting a number of positions. Tight end hasn't been one of them. In fact, I would say tight end's been the position that they've recruited the best. They've landed a number of of really talented uh, folks. They beat out Washington head-to-head for Jake Overton, a three-star tight end from a couple of the classes ago. Luke Musgrave's been very good. Tegan Quatoriano is a very good player. They've done well recruiting the tight end position. So I just feel like the gap potentially between Jack Velling and the next guy they would get had Jack Velling chosen Michigan or chosen Arizona State um, wouldn't be the same drop-off as some of these positions other places. So yes, Jack Velling is a great commitment. I just am not a hundred percent sold that Oregon state, if they didn't get Jack Velling, they couldn't have gotten a similar style player. And that's not a knock on Jack Velling tight ends, just their best position from a recruiting standpoint. They've just killed it. The other piece here is, is Jack Velling uh, was kind of both a backup plan for Michigan and Oregon state. Now he was a very, very, very good backup plan because both Oregon state and Michigan were going after Colston Loveland. who was a four-star prospect with an offer from Alabama. Oregon state got involved really early. At one point they were his leader. They recruited him hard. He committed to Michigan when he committed to Michigan that really cleared the way for Jack Velling to choose Oregon state. So that's another reason for him not being in the top five. Not that he's not a great consolation prize because he is, but it is a statement that the reason he chose Oregon state to some extent was because Oregon state missed out on Colson Loveland who chose Michigan again, when Loveland chose Michigan. Velling's Michigan offer wasn't necessarily an option, so Velling chooses Oregon State. So again, in terms of overall talent, he's a top five commit in this class. You could even argue he's a top three commit in this class, but I don't think he's one of the top five most important. And and you'll see right away that it's not based on ranking. It's not based on offers because my number five guy in this class in terms of most important is three-star defensive lineman Takari Hickel at a Tanino Washington. I like that he's got the Northwest tie, but, and a lot of fans will point this out, he's the lowest rated commitment in this class. So Nemec, how in the world could Takari Hickel be one of the top five most important commits in this class if he's the lowest rated pledge? And and his only other offer was from Nevada. And really, to me, it's pretty simple. I don't think I've seen a commitment that more obviously 
indicated cohesion in a defensive philosophy and more obviously showed a transition from old guard to new guard in terms of coaching staff and philosophy on the recruiting trail than Takari Hickel. And the reason is you go back and look at the history of edge rusher recruits that were projects. Takari Hickel's a project. He's the lowest rated kid, but there's a lot to like about him. He is six foot four, 240 pounds. He's roughly the same size as Brian Burns, who's been a, an up and coming edge rusher defensive end for the Carolina Panthers in the NFL. His, his wingspan is seven feet, which is absolutely out of control for a six foot four player. And he has massive hands, the biggest hands uh, I can remember other than DeForest Buckner and DeForest Buckner has the biggest hands in NFL history at 11 inches 11 and three quarters inches his hands are 11 and one eighth inch long that are big uh that's the same size as jj watt so you're getting a guy who's the build of brian burns with a with an 11 or a seven foot wingspan and 11 and an eighth inch hands the measurables are off the charts he measures off the charts completely off the chart i mean he's he's nfl off the charts so what's the deal? Well, he's not super experienced in football, and he plays at one at a, at a 1A school in Washington. But there's a lot to like. If you can build on him for three or four years, and you're going to have potentially five years to build on him if he redshirts and then you build him up, he's got a chance to be a really talented player. And why does that matter? Let's compare an edge-rushing project from this class in Takari Hickel to an edge-rushing project that Gary Anderson secured. In the class of 2016, Anderson took a chance on Joel Robinett. Joel Robinett was six foot eight. I think he was listed at 215. He was right around 200 pounds. Six foot eight, 200 pounds. He needed 40 or 50 pounds to be an effective player, but they were pretty thin. So he ended up having a lot like Robinett on the roster. So he ended up having to play early, got hurt. It set him back. He wasn't able to build. There was a lot with Robinett. And by the way, his only other offer and offers Nevada and San Diego State. Hickel's only other offer, Nevada. But you look at the way these two prospects are built different. Joel Robinett needed 30 or 40 pounds. He probably needed two years of just no playing, just bodybuilding to have any chance of making it. And then you look at Hickel, and he's already six foot four, 240 pounds with those long arms. You could potentially see him being a guy in the middle or, you know, closer, maybe out to the edge uh, on special teams, trying to get his big hands up there, those 11 inch hands, that seven foot wingspan, and block some kicks. You give him some experience while he builds his body. You can already explain to me how he's an effective piece. Joel Robinett, there was just no way to me that you could explain him being an effective piece. He was going to get pushed off the ball. He needed to gain 30 or 40 pounds at least before he would be an effective defensive lineman in the Pac-12. And because the roster under Gary Anderson was so thin, he had to play right away. So he didn't get a chance to build that muscle. Then he gets hurt, which sets him back in terms of building his body. And suddenly you've kind of flushed two years on a project that needed two years to develop in Robin. Sure enough, he transferred to San Diego State really struggled to make any impact there. And and now he is not in football. He has since moved on. Football's over for him. But it just really, he didn't even, you know, have a chance to really make an impact in the Mountain West. That tells you the kind of project he was. And edge rusher is a hard one to recruit. It just is. I mean, even some of the best schools in the Pac-12 have a hard time getting elite edge rushers. You can draw a map to success for Hickel a lot more easily than you can for Robin. And I think when you're taking projects, 
and you're taking smart projects that can potentially physically can, can physically contribute right away, and then as you develop them, potentially explode late, that's the kind of project you want. I think too often Oregon State has taken the project that says on the 5% chance he pans out, he's got a chance to be all Pac-12. If he doesn't, he's got an 80% chance of doing absolutely nothing. And that was kind of the old guard. And, and you could go down their recruiting class in the Gary Anderson era and go, and whether it was, you know, even some of their elite recruits, like a Sherrod Thompson, who was a four-star safety, there was an 80% chance he'd flame out because of academics before he even made it. Sure enough, you know, Christian Wallace was a four-star prospect for Gary Anderson, but the roadmap to him figuring it out was actually pretty difficult because he was a tweener linebacker safety. He wasn't fast enough to play safety. He wasn't big enough to play linebacker. And it was like, man, I, I get it. I see it. He's talented, but I just, I think it's really an uphill battle to make him an effective pack. 12 player Hickel's the lowest rated kid in this class right now and I can pretty easily draw a line to him being a productive special teamer early and I think there's a 20 to 25 percent chance he develops as an all pack 12 player down the road that's the kind of project you want to take and by the way last I checked and and maybe listeners will correct me here there aren't too many places where it's very obvious how big a kid's hands are. It's not very obvious how big a kid's wingspan is. And at the 1A level, it's not real obvious to find a talent like that. But Oregon State did the research. Oregon State found that Takari Hinkle was the captain of his football team. He's the captain of his basketball team. He's a productive athlete. They had him on campus. They were able to measure his wingspan and his hand width and then go ahead and get him, offer him and get him. It takes a nuanced approach because for every Takari Hickel that you find that's the 1A kid who's the team captain for basketball and football, you host 100 kids who measure out too small, too slow, and, and you're not interested. But you have to put in all that groundwork. So between the groundwork it took to find Hickel, the aggressiveness to get him, and the gap that exists between what Oregon State used to get in their projects and this project, Takari Hickel is a massive statement about how much better the process has gotten for Oregon State recruiting. Is he one of the top five com commitments in this class? No, but his commitment and his recruitment are very significant in signs of growth for the Oregon State Beavers. At number four, Travis Throckmorton from Simi Valley, California. He had offers from Florida Atlantic, Nevada, Oregon State, and Southern Miss doesn't really worry me too much. He's been, frankly, a little bit of a late bloomer. Travis Throckmorton went to the Elite 11 Regional in Los Angeles, and he was the most accurate quarterback there. That is hugely significant because I do trust Jonathan Smith and his staff to scheme receivers open. They've done a good job. There's a lot of offensive-minded talent in that coaching room. They know what they're doing. Coach Lindgren, Coach Smith, those guys know what they're doing. They're good football coaches. They are. I don't always know if they're the best closers in recruiting, always, but they really do know how to scheme up their talent. They do a nice job of that. So to get a guy that's accurate, to get a guy that can put the ball on the numbers is very valuable. And Throckmorton went to that camp with some of the best quarterbacks in the nation and was the most accurate guy there. Greg Biggins was on hand for that. I had a chance to talk to him and, and asked him, you know, does it surprise you that Throckmorton showed that kind of progress? And he said, no, 
but only because his trainer has been sending me videos regularly showing me his progress, and he clearly is a pretty good prospect. Viggins also mentioned that Throckmorton could end up being a four-star prospect by the end, and that in terms of talent, Throckmorton might be the most skilled and the most physically gifted quarterback Oregon State's gotten in several years. I think Throckmorton would have been, had he been uncommitted, I think Throckmorton would have got a lot more recruiting attention. So this was a very nice get. They identified him early. He's not very big. I, he's listed at like 6'3". He's not. He's just not. I mean, he's he's measured in at like 6'1.5", 6'2"-ish, right in that range. So that's fine. The big thing that he does, not only is he accurate, so he does a nice job when he's in the pocket, but he's also very, very good and very accurate off platform. He is comfortable when he gets flushed from the pocket. He is comfortable when he has to kind of sidestep the pass rush, keeping his eyes downfield and delivering the ball on target. That's huge. There's a lot of guys who are pretty good in structure. There are guys who are really good running and they they can throw on the run, but there are very few, or at least there are few, Um, although it is becoming more common, that can do both. You want a quarterback that can do both. You want a guy that can extend plays with his legs, not necessarily always running for first downs, but just getting away from pressure long enough that his receivers can, can get open. And Throckmorton can do that. And being able to throw on the run accurately is huge. Throckmorton's got a chance to be a really good one. I think he's going to be better than his ranking. And I think we're looking at a situation now where we stack Sam Vidlak, who who I really liked, a three-star prospect who looked great in the spring game, and now back-to-back with Travis Rockmorton. I think Oregon State's looking like they're going to be pretty good in the future. And and I you know I like to be realistic about the quarterback situation. I don't care if you're landing five-star talent or four-star talent. At the end of the day, you need one of those guys to hit. And I think between Vidlak and Rockmorton, I don't know which one. If I was betting, I don't know if I would be able to guess. But between Vidlak and Throckmorton, I think Oregon State has two guys that have a pretty good chance of panning out. And if you gave me odds on one of them hitting, I would definitely take it because I think one of them, certainly, if not both, are going to hit and be productive quarterbacks. So I think that's very, very important. At number three, four-star center Dylan Lopez out of Bradenton, Florida. A little bit misleading that he is from Florida because he grew up in California. He simply transferred to IMG Academy in Florida, one of the top prep schools, one of the top high schools uh, for athletics in the country. It's it's one of those schools you just kind of go to as an athlete, uh, and, and their football programs one or two in the nation seemingly every year now. He bet on himself. He went there. He's got offers from Arizona State, California, Colorado, Kansas, Michigan State, Oregon State, Syracuse, USC, and Washington. What are the two biggest bugaboos I've complained about for several years now for Oregon State? Offensive line recruiting. They've just struggled there. And closing out quality prospects who are nearing a decision. Time and time again, we've seen Oregon State right there, gets to signing day, and they miss on a top prospect. And they have to go down their board late. We've seen that over and over, particularly with offensive linemen. Dylan Lopez visited Oregon State. He visited Cal right alongside uh, Luka Vincic. They both took visits. They took the travel separately, but they both visited the same weekend. They hung out together. Uh, Luka Vincic is a three-star offensive tackle. They visited Oregon State and Cal back-to-back weekends. They were there together. They talked together. They bonded together. And Dylan Lopez, the number two center at the time of his commitment, ESPN's dropped him to the number three center in America, committed to Oregon State. Chooses Oregon State over Cal head-to-head, 
And not only that, but that then helps with Luka Vincic, a three-star offensive tackle who chose Oregon State over Cal just a few days later. So to get Dylan Lopez as the first domino, not only is Dylan Lopez the number three center in America, and that's a huge get. And and obviously, I think center, for me personally, I think center is kind of an underrated position. A lot is made of offensive tackles. A lot is made of guards, big guards. Uh, but I think the center position sometimes in terms of calling out protections is as important as, you know, your best guard or one of your best tackles. I still think an elite tackle is the most valuable, but if you've got a center who can communicate what his teammates need to be doing, and often that is on the center, that's a hugely valuable piece. Dylan Lopez, a really talented kid, and it just speaks to how much Oregon State's improved. It's not that long ago. I mentioned it earlier in the show. It's not that long ago that Oregon State was beating out the likes of Portland State of Montana and Montana State and Incarnate Word for offensive linemen late in the recruiting cycle. Not only are they not going to have to do that this time, but they're beating out quality Pac-12 opponents for guys who have four stars next to their name, have three high three stars next to their name. It's a very good sign, again, of progress. And that's really going to be a running theme throughout this top five. I think it's going to be a running theme throughout 2022. After we do this top five, I'll break down a couple of areas. I still see uh, room for improvement, but generally speaking, a lot of growth here from Oregon State. Dylan Lopez at number three, the third most important commit in this class uh, so far for Oregon State, certainly a sign of that. At number two, Three-star defensive tackle Quincy Wright from Duncanville, Texas, offers from Arkansas, Colorado State, Kansas, Liberty Marshall, Minnesota, Ole Miss, and Oregon State. Listen, nose tackles, big defensive tackles don't grow on trees in the Pac-12. They're hard to find. And, you know, I think it was Biggins or Huffman. It was Biggins. Uh, Four or five years ago, three years ago, maybe. Uh, COVID has just killed my brain for how long ago things were. I'll say like, oh, it's three months ago, and it's literally 18 months ago. But uh, it was a few years ago that Greg Biggins mentioned that sometimes the number three offensive tackle or number three defensive tackle in the West region would be something like 30th in the South. It, it's They're just hard to find. You You often have to go elsewhere because USC, Oregon, Washington are often going to get that elite defensive lineman that's on the West Coast if they aren't plucked away, like we just saw with JT Tuomalau out of Washington going to Ohio State. If they do stay, they often go to one of the big boys, air quotes, in recruiting in the Pac-12 conference. So it, they're difficult to find. And Oregon State, frankly, has had a hard time, just like almost everybody in the Pac-12, at finding defensive tackles and nose tackles. They've just had a hard time. So to be able to go into Texas, into Duncanville, which is a very good program and could develop into a pipeline for him, and get Quincy Wright, who has other Power 5 conference offers, that's huge. You know, we've looked at what they've done in the past, and and really, frankly, they've had to fill that void with transfers. Whether it's junior college transfers or a guy like Keontae Shad out of Minnesota, they've had to go the transfer route to fill that spot at nose tackle or defensive tackle. So Quincy Wright fills that gap, uh, both literally and figuratively. He's six foot two. He's 275 pounds. I actually think he's more like 280, 285, even though he's listed 275. And I don't necessarily think he's going to be a 10 sack guy. That's not going to be his job. He's going to be a run stuffer that can potentially push the pocket back into the quarterback and make him a little uncomfortable in some of his three-step drops or when he's in the shotgun on some of his uh, intermediate to long reads. That's what you want out of your defensive tackle. If he can get four or five sacks a season, phenomenal, phenomenal. If he's consistently pushing the pocket and slowing down the run game, Quincy Wright, a much needed developmental piece out of the high school ranks. Again, not a graduate transfer. 
got a transfer that failed at another program or struggled to get playing time at another program or his coach left at another program. This is Oregon State identifying a talent in Texas, going out and getting him. Number one, and I mean, realistically, come on now, this one was pretty obvious. Four-star linebacker Melvin Jordan out of Clearwater, Florida, the number six inside linebacker in the country, according to Rivals. He's a top 500 recruit nationally, according to 24-7 Sports. Uh, There's a gap there, obviously, and it'll be interesting to see who is right. Uh, So far, anyway, though, based on his film, to me, looks like Rivals more right. I think Melvin Jordan's got a chance to be special. Offers from Arizona State, Arkansas, Cincinnati, Florida, Florida State, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Miami. (gasps) Gotta breathe, there's so many. Minnesota, Oregon State, Pittsburgh, South Carolina, Southern Miss, Troy, Central Florida, South Florida, and West Virginia. Okay, so a lot of offers. But I think here's the big thing. You know, in the past few years, Oregon State's uh, added some talent through the state of Florida. When they've done that, they've often had offers from Central Florida, Florida International, Florida Atlantic. Very rarely have those talents had the big three from Florida. Florida, Florida State, Miami. They just have. They've gotten a lot of lower three-star talent out of Florida. This is different. This is a bigger statement. This is building some real inroads in a key state. Again, you get Quincy Wright from Texas. You get Melvin Jordan from Florida. Their top two biggest prospects in this class right now are from major, major talent producers. The top three talent producing states for high school football prospects are California, Texas, and Florida. Then there's a debate between, you know, Ohio, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Alabama for the fourth best state, fifth best state. But the big three is clear-cut. That's not negotiable. Now, you can order them differently, but California, Texas, and Florida are clearly the big three. Oregon State's done a better job with California. They need to continue to do a better job in California. But they've also now built inroads in Texas with Quincy Wright and Melvin Jordan in Florida. That's huge. Melvin Jordan uh, really fell in love with Oregon State's philosophy, and I think that's a major piece here is, is when scheme helps dictate where you're headed. Oregon State did a great job with Avery Roberts and Omar Spates last year, and those two individuals did a phenomenal job. Avery Roberts, a Nebraska transfer. Omar Spates was a four-star prospect, I believe, on 24-7 Sports and Rivals until he committed to Oregon State, and then he dropped to a three-star prospect. Uh, Omar Spates and Avery Roberts finished 1-2. Avery Roberts was 1, Omar Spates was 2 in Pac-12 tackles last year. Two biggest leaders in the Pac-12 were inside linebackers. You sell Melvin Jordan, hey, listen, we do need you to cover. We need you to cover. And it, you know, at his size, that's not really an issue because he's, I think, 6'1, 200 pounds. He's almost safety size. But we also want you to come up and play the run and be a thumper. And our scheme allows you to do that. So Melvin Jordan is going to have that opportunity. He fell in love with that. He fell in love with that philosophy for Oregon State. Listen, we're going to put you in a position to hit and rack up tackles, and because we're still developing as a program, still haven't made a bowl game in a few years, you'll probably get a chance to play pretty early. Melvin Jordan, I think, has a chance to be a really, really talented player in the Pac-12, and I love his versatility. I love that he can cover. I think modern linebackers, you know, you look at the NFL, and Fred Warner just got paid the highest contract in the history, uh, well, currently in the league, by an off-ball linebacker, and you look, and that's guys like Bobby Wagner and Fred Warner. 
you know, Devin White gets a ton of credit, but Levante David's actually right now, in my opinion, um, in PFF's opinion, a better player. Uh, those guys are really good in coverage. And yes, they can hit, but they're not that Ray Lewis thumper. They're, I mean, Bobby Wagner lays the woods, certainly. But in terms of like that old school, crunch you 1980s linebacker mentality, that's not really what's asked of the position anymore. It's it's very versatile. You have to be a versatile athlete. You have to be able to take on a tight end in coverage. You have to be able to pick up a running back in the flat if you dump a ball out to him. You have to be able to play the run. You have to be able to back up in zone and cover the middle of the field and pick up a receiver that enters your zone or a tight end that enters your zone on third down. You have to be able to blitz. You have to be able to do it all. And that's one of the reasons when people talk about the linebacker position in the NFL. It is one of the most difficult positions now, if not other than quarterback, the most difficult position to play because the NFL just puts you in a blender. You have to do too much. Imagine trying to tackle Derrick Henry, but also sometimes being schemed up where you have to pick up AJ Brown on the outside, the receiver. It's just, it's a lot. It's very versatile. It's very difficult, very complex. And Melvin Jordan looks like the type of body who can do both. It's really exciting. I mean, it's one of those things you look at him and you go, I get it. Not only do I get it, I I, I think that he kind of fits in seamlessly with what they do and has a chance to be a phenomenal player. So I'm really excited to see his development. The key here is he's transferred to multiple schools. He's been committed to multiple schools. Oregon State's going to have to fight to hang on to him. Anytime there's a cross-country commitment, I don't care if, you know, I mean, look, look at JT Tuomalau with Ohio State. Everyone thought it was Ohio State for 18 months. And still at the end, people are like, well, maybe he wants to stay close to home. It is tough to pull kids from cross country, even if you're a program like Ohio State, even if you're a program like Michigan, even if you're a program like Alabama, the local schools come calling and late mom, dad wants you to stay home. Your uncle wants you to stay home. Your brother wants you to stay home. Your sister wants you to stay home. And it gets your girlfriend wants you to stay home. That happens more than you think. And it gets tougher. So Oregon State's got to hang on to this commitment. And I do think if Florida, Florida State or Miami pushed hard, that would make it very difficult. They almost have to hope Florida, Florida State, and Miami don't ever really fully engage and go all in for Melvin Jordan because I do think he would choose one of the big three. I, I, that's my gut. That being said, they've done an excellent job selling him on scheme. He liked Corvallis. He, he says he wants to get away from Florida, and that's a great thing. I think Melvin Jordan has a chance to be very special. The key, again, hanging on to that commitment. Very positive signs. Again, almost a top 50 class. They're in the top six or seven in the Pac-12 conference. That's huge. It's absolutely massive for Oregon State. It's a sign of major, major growth. Where are some areas they can improve? I think California recruiting, certainly an area Oregon State could improve. I think they need to start landing some of the bigger names in California. It is tough because not only do you have the national programs trying to pull those guys, Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, uh, Georgia, all those programs, but also you have USC, you have Washington, Oregon, Arizona State's doing a little bit better in California than they have in years past, and that makes it tough. But I think Oregon State, if they could start getting a couple, three, four top 50 kids from the state of California every year, that's not a huge ask. That's not that's not overstating it to get three or four of the top 50 kids in California. I think they, they would help bolster this class a little bit more. But that's a that's a fairly minor criticism. The the other piece here, and this is a bugaboo for a couple of programs, frankly. I think this is something that's holding back Oregon right now when it comes to top 200 prospects. Oregon State only has one top 500 high school prospect out of their 11. And we keep talking about, according to 24-7 sports composite rankings, 
Now, I, I do think it's important that Melvin Jordan would be, he is clearly on 24-7 sports composite ranking right now, but he's way up there on rivals. Dylan Lopez would be on ESPNs, but he's not in the composite ranking. So they have guys that are top 500 on at least one site, but the composite rankings are an average over ESPN, 24-7 sports, and rivals. And the top 500 is kind of the threshold of quality, high-impact potential get. And Oregon State's had a number of classes. They had three in a row where they didn't get any. I think last year they got two or three. That was progress, even though they finished 100 and whatever, because they didn't get very many commitments. But they still got a couple of 500 guys, top 500 guys. This class currently has one. They need to finish with four, five, six. That would be a, a very, very solid recruiting class. If they finish with one in terms of top 500 talent, that's actually a, a lower top 500 output than last year that finished outside the top 100. So even though there are really good signs, still work to be done. The other piece here in the caveat, the asterisk here with Oregon State's recruiting, with everybody's recruiting, is that top, uh, whether it's top 200, whether it's top 500, whether it's top 1,000, regardless, the rankings in general, kids have not been seen, athletes have not been seen a ton. So there's going to be a lot of fluidity. Could Dylan Lopez jump into the top 500? Certainly. Could Travis Throckmorton jump into the top 500? Certainly. So there are a number of avenues to get into that top 500 with guys that are currently committed. Because a lot of guys just haven't been seen a ton. And rankings haven't been fully updated. So look for a lot of fluidity there. And really, this is more of a benchmark by the end. It doesn't matter right now that they have one top 500 in the 24-7 composite rankings because, frankly, Melvin Jordan could slide and four others could jump up because there's going to be fluidity. But it is something to watch. And, you know, it's the same thing right now for Oregon. The Oregon Ducks right now are flexing, you know, this is a great recruiting class, potential top 10 recruiting class. Last year, well over half their commitments were top 200 prospects. This year they have one. One. And everybody goes, well, Oregon's killing it in recruiting. Well, actually, the signs kind of indicate that Oregon is getting a lot of those guys that are 200 to 400, which frankly is not as impactful, generally speaking, as getting guys who are 75th through 180th, which was their bread and butter last year. So this, and it, again, they're in the same spot. We have to watch the fluidity of the rankings. It's something to watch. In general, set a benchmark for your program. You know, whether it's, man, I'd really like to get, look back at the history. Okay, roughly we get two top 400 kids every year. Or roughly we get six top 100 kids every year if you're an elite program. And then try to hit that benchmark by the end. Because that speaks to how many talented, elite potential guys you've got compared to years past. Right now, still some work to do there. But again, generally speaking, very good class. Let's take a quick break. I want to get to some basketball, uh, and, and in particular, talk about some impact local stars that have interest in Oregon or Oregon State, an Oregon women's basketball player or commit, uh, won a national title, and, and Oregon makes the cut list for the number one player in America. All that after a quick break. Welcome back. Breaking off from football and talking a little hoops. Uh, some some big news, frankly, on the recruiting trail. Also, the summer circuit kind of sheds light on who is emerging as a potential breakout talent. 
And really the big news in recruiting right now locally is that Oregon made the top eight for Imani Bates, the number one prospect in America, according to ESPN, the number two prospect in America, according to 24-7 Sports. Imani Bates, once committed to Michigan State, considered kind of the air quotes here, but kind of the next Paul George, if you will, six foot eight, 200 pounds, a truly, truly, truly special talent cuts his list. He's got five colleges. It's a top eight, five are colleges, Baylor, Oregon, Memphis, Miami, Michigan state, and three are professional leagues, the NBA's G league overtime elite and the national basketball league. Australia, New Zealand is the National Basketball League. That's their home. Uh, And they recently offered Dior Johnson $1.2 million, the Oregon commit, the five-star point guard. He turned that down to go to Oregon. Oregon just recently offered and still made the top five. And and I want to be clear here, I'm not ready to make a prediction by any stretch of the imagination, especially when the pro leagues are involved. But Oregon's got a shot here. And I said that before with Dior Johnson. I'm saying it again with Imani Bates. Now, they ended up getting Dior Johnson, so anytime you make the comparison, then people think, oh, they're definitely getting Imani Bates. I don't think it's a definite. It's far from a slam dunk, but I think Oregon has a real shot. And in terms of his top college options, I do think Oregon's one or two out of his top college options. And that's something to get excited about. Do I Again, do I think it's a slam dunk? No, I don't even think it's a slam dunk that he goes to college. He might just go to the pro leagues. But as we saw with Dior Johnson, as we've seen with Kayvon Thibodeau's deal with Nike, the NIL rules are closing the gap between what colleges can offer and what pro leagues can offer. Before, it was like, do I want to go to school for free? And, you know, not make any money, just generally speaking, not make any money. Or as we've seen with some of these investigations with schools like Arizona and, and, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on some of the other schools, but there are a number of schools involved in that scandal. Uh, could I make a hundred thousand or 200,000 going somewhere else? And the gaps closed because the NIL rules make it more possible for these kids to be, for these athletes to be earners while they're in college. So getting a $1.2 million offer like Dior Johnson got from the National Basketball League, people say, well, you know, if he goes to Oregon, maybe, maybe he gets a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars. Okay, half a million. We'll just throw out a number. Half a million uh in in different endorsement deals going to Oregon. Again, I don't I'm just literally making up a number. But people say, well, gosh, you take the 1.2. Well, he has to leave his family behind. He has to go somewhere he's not familiar with. He's not on his biggest stage. It's harder for him to build hype. It's harder for him to build social media buzz. We've seen guys, uh, Terrence Ferguson, uh, as a prime example, go overseas, and you just don't hear about him for a year. Suddenly, they're just gone for a year. You don't see highlights. They don't blow up. Even, you know, even, even LaMelo Ball, who went overseas to play and ended up being a phenom in the NBA, uh, maybe Phenom's a little, a little bit overstated. Very, very good in the NBA. He was very talented in the NBA. He looks like he's going to be a very good player in the NBA. He just disappeared for a year, and he, he's a ball. And and we all know about how much the ball, the ball family gets blown up on social media. And and even he was kind of quiet in terms of the buzz and the hype that was built for him. If you build hype through the tournament, if you build hype through college basketball, I do think. That is an easier path to seeing your your stock rise. And and what we've seen from Dior Johnson after an AAU circuit is his stock just continues to rise. Dior Johnson, the Oregon commit, five-star point guard, uh, through the AAU circuit this year, 17.4 points, 7.5 rebounds, 4.6 assists, 1.4 steals. All signs seem to indicate he's a future lottery pick, future top 20 pick, and not... 
Not that $1.2 million is anything to sneeze at, but the gap between what he'll earn from Oregon and what he would earn potentially in the NBL is a drop in the bucket compared to what it looks like he'll potentially earn in the NBA. And then you go up a whole nother level, and that's Imani Bates, because people think Imani Bates is a future multi-time all-star. So yeah, maybe the overtime elite league offers him $3 million, and, and that would be tough to turn down. I'm not saying it wouldn't, but Imani Bates is going to go viral for a number of things that he does. He's going to have endorsement opportunities with, with Nike. I imagine if Kayvon Thibodeau did, I imagine Imani Bates would as well. And maybe Oregon can get that number or any school, whether it's Baylor, Memphis, Miami, or Michigan state can get that number to half a million. And he decides he wants to go the college route and experience being a college student. I think Oregon's got a shot. I don't think it's a slam dunk, but I, I don't think it's one of those, eh, they're on the list for no reason, move on. Oregon's got a shot with Imani Bates. It'll be interesting to watch. Dior Johnson, again, huge AAU season, continues to show why he's special. And I've mentioned it before, I'll mention it again. People think he's a Pied Piper recruit. People think the way he distributes the basketball, the way he scores, the type of player he could be, he's the type of personality, he's the type of player who other athletes want to play with because Dior Johnson doesn't have to be an elite elite scorer he can be a facilitator he's comfortable being a facilitator he's comfortable being a winner he plays the point guard position like a pro guys want to play with that kind of guy so I do think Oregon's 2022 recruiting class because of Dior Johnson in part is going to be very special maybe it's not Imani Bates maybe it's a different five-star guy but I do think this Oregon recruiting class this year is going to be very 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 good and I think it's got a chance to be all world if they get Imani Bates, because if they get Imani Bates and Dior Johnson, that won't be the end of it. That will not be the end of it if they get those two, because those two are two of the most, air quotes here, Pied Piper-y type players that you could get in this recruiting class. If Oregon gets both of them, look out. They could end up with four or five five-star prospects. Again, though, uh, that's a big domino to fall, getting a guy like Imani Bates. Mentioned Dior Johnson on the AAU circuit. A couple of local stars had some big performances on the AAU circuit. Class of 2023, Westland point guard Jackson Shellstead of the Oakland Soldiers played in Peach Jam. Arguably the number one tournament, summer tournament in America for AAU basketball. And he went off 19.2 points per game, 52% shooting. He's the number 59 player in the nation. That's probably going to go up. He's probably going to be a top 40 kid in the nation. He's got offers from Oregon, Oregon State, and Kansas. Just since that performance, which was within the last few days, he's generated interest, new interest, uh, from Baylor, Florida, Michigan, UConn, Villanova, and Virginia. That is not quite North Carolina, Duke. uh, Kansas is already an offer. That's not quite the Blue Bloods, but that's the next level. Baylor, national title. Michigan, UConn, Villanova, Virginia, Florida, those are those schools that are in that, you know, top 15 seemingly every year recently, big time. He is blowing up on a more localized level in terms of his recruitment because Shellstead's going to end up being a national recruit. And Oregon's got a shot because he's got that relationship with Peyton Pritchard, long-term relationship. One of his first calls, it might have been his very first call when he got the offer from Oregon when he was first allowed to call. He made a call to Peyton Pritchard, said, I got the offer. And I, that's a huge one. He was a huge Oregon Duck fan when Peyton Pritchard was there. Peyton was a mentor for him at West Lynn when he was very, very, very young. Peyton took him under his wing and it made a lot of sense when he got that offer that that would be his first call because they're very, very close. Does he want to follow truly in Peyton's footsteps? They're big shoes to fill, but he hasn't, he hasn't shied away from that in the past, doing a great job at West Lynn. Really interesting to see how Shellstead develops. Uh, Oregon's going to have 
a, a very good shot throughout his recruitment. But if some of those other schools come in, it's going to be an interesting and long recruitment. Jefferson, uh, point guard, combo guard, Lamar Washington, Gatorade player of the year. He might be the number one football recruit in the state of Oregon as well for the class of 2022. He's a great, he's a four-star linebacker. He should be a four-star basketball recruit at this point. Six foot four, 210, bruiser, physical, but also highly skilled on the basketball court. He's got offers from Oregon State, TCU, and Texas Tech. He led Dream Vision Basketball to the finals of the Hoop Circuit Las Vegas Summer Championship, scoring 28 points in the semifinals. Look for his stock to continue to rise. Currently not rated as a basketball prospect. Again, he's at least a three-star talent, and, and you can tell that by his offer sheet, Oregon State, TCU, Texas Tech. Oregon also hosted him on a visit and is considering him as a potential offer. It sounds like at least that is Lamar Washington's feel at this point. Oregon is very interested. They may have to go on him sooner rather than later uh, because his stock is blowing up. It's going to be really interesting to see, but it's great to see Jackson Shellstead and Lamar Washington go huge and play huge on the AAU circuit on the national level. You know, we haven't seen a ton of that. Obviously, Nathan Biddle and Ben Gregg recently did that. Biddle, the five-star center, headed to Oregon. Ben Gregg, the four-star power forward, headed to Gonzaga, or already at Gonzaga. I guess Biddle's already in Eugene now, too. Uh, both those guys, you know, recently played really well, but it's been a few years since we've had kind of what's the latest with the Oregon basketball recruits because there haven't been very many. And now we're seeing them. Obviously Mookie cook is the number three player in America. He also will be a player to watch uh, going forward, but just really nice to see some local stars. And again, when you see like, look at Shellstead's offers, Oregon, Oregon state, Kansas. So you've got the local tie, you've got a blue blood in there and now interest from Baylor, Yukon, Villanova, Virginia. It's just really cool to see that local stars are becoming national spotlight type talents. On the women's side of things, uh, Nike Nationals for 17 and under, uh, the 17 and under tournament took place here this weekend, and the Cal Stars win the national title. Not only is that Sabrina Unescu's former AAU club, she also has now sponsored the club, and they are the considered, well, they're the Cal Stars still, but on their jerseys, their name is Unescu Elite. UNESCO Elite, all they do is win. Uh, all Sabrina does is win. So, of course, UNESCO Elite in her first year sponsoring a team, her team wins the national title. That is big because arguably the top star right now on the Cal Stars, UNESCO Elite, is Jenna Asai. Jenna Asai is the number 35 player in the nation. And oh, by the way, she is committed to the University of Oregon and she's been banged up. So, to see her in her first real action in a little while, lead her team to a national title means her stock is probably going to rise as a reminder uh, right around. And I forget the exact number. I think it's the top 52 every year. It's like 52, 54, somewhere around there. Uh, players in the nation are given five-star status on ESPN recruiting. Jenna Asai right now is number 35. She's a four-star right now. Again, by the time signing day rolls around, they just drop the five-star cut list to 52 or 54. They've done it every year for five years in a row. I've had some people argue with me. She's only a four-star star uh in the past few years like Oregon State got this four star girl uh she's going to she's a four star why do you keep saying a future five star you don't know that for sure yes i do as long as they don't drop in the rankings again espn always makes at least their top 50 prospects in america uh five star talent jenna asai number 35 right now probably going to rise after winning a national title i think we covered almost everything 
I mean, there's a lot more to go <laughs> in terms of recruiting, but I think this makes for a pretty strong, pretty long podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Recruiting Trail. We will be back later this week for a breakdown of the Oregon Ducks recruiting class, the good, the bad, and let's face it, the ugly is just uh, those hog maulers up front they have on the offensive and defensive line who are huge and highly rated because there's not a lot of negatives in this Oregon Ducks recruiting class. Again, a breakdown of the Oregon Ducks recruiting class, uh, football recruiting class so far later in the week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>